these are times where there are a lot of pressures on parents to schedule their children up or thinking that they're doing their children a disservice if they're not driving them from tennis lessons to violin lessons to soccer camp to, you know, and I think it, it'd be great if parents gave themselves some permission uh, to, to relax about that a little bit and give their, and see the value in giving their children some downtime and even working through a little bit of boredom, <laughs> you know, and figuring out what to do with that. And that's okay. Welcome to the Movable Podcast, where we interview using education, movement, and play from around the world. Here's your host, my daddy, Brian Lane. Today's guest has more than 30 years of experience as an early childhood teacher and administrator. She's an expert in playful learning and the play-based Reggio Emilia approach leading professional development trainings across the country. Please welcome the Assistant Vice President for Education at the Woodbury School, Debbie McCoy. Debbie, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Brian. No problem. So how, we talked about it a little bit a minute ago, but how are things going there at the museum and at the school preparing for next year? Is it ramping up? Are you getting busier as we get closer? We definitely are. We welcomed guests back starting on June 27th as part of phase four in New York State. So um, we started very slowly by design and we've been adding capacity um, each week. So and we're excited to be welcoming back um, students for the 14th year of Woodbury School. Wow, really? 14 years? Yes. That's awesome. Well, back in 2006, uh, the museum underwent a very large expansion and almost doubled in size. And that was the time when we went from a museum that featured the collections, many of the collections of Margaret Strong, although we still have those, at focusing on history and Americana in general, to this mission of focusing on play and exploring the role of play in development and in learning and creativity. Hmm. So the Woodbury School was part of that re-envisioning the mission and was um, right from the start, we used the Reggio Emilia approach because it's playful. And we really wanted to not just think and talk about play, but be able to demonstrate that really rich learning happens through play. Mm -hmm. And that's what I love. I think as, as a museum, you guys do such a great job of proving that learning can occur through play instead of play just being something that kids do and people do that doesn't amount to anything. And I don't know the, just the bad connotation that goes along with it. A lot of times, I mean, you can, when you go to the museum, you can, witness it with all the kids. You can see that they're learning through play. That's right. And you mentioned the bad connotation and you're right. Sometimes um, play has brings to mind for some people that it's frivolous, that it's fluffy, that it, and with a lack of understanding of how it can lead to deep learning. So we're really all about helping people explore that idea and be able to articulate why they do what they do when they use play at the heart of learning. Mm-hmm. Now, this is maybe getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but as you were saying that, I started wondering, it seems like more people are accepting of that, of play as a form of learning when kids are young, but 
Do you think that many people believe that as kids get older? I think you're you're correct in thinking that um, or whether it's people going into early childhood education because that is <laughs> that is what they believe from the start, or once mm-hmm. they start working with very young children. I mean, the children will keep you honest. (laughs) If you you try not to incorporate play, it would be kind of counterproductive and you would see that. But Mm -hmm. I think you're right. Sometimes teachers, as you get up in the ages, aren't aren't always clear on how play leads to learning. And they think of play maybe as just free play, recess, and miss the, the other opportunities for incorporating play and connections through between play and the curriculum yeah yeah you're right and i I think that's too bad because i I think you're right i think people miss that they they don't connect the dots as well as kids get older and think it's just for younger kids but again going to the museum you can see kids i know there's kids that have been going there since they could barely walk and now they're teenagers and they still like going there and doing all the exhibits even as an adult i enjoy going there and playing around I think you're right. And when you think about the role of play in all of our lives, it, it's helpful to learn how it can, you can tap into your playful spirit for creativity, for a lot of applications to job skills. Mm-hmm. Can you explain the Reggio Emilia approach a little bit for those people listening that might not know what it is? Sure. Reggio Emilia is a city in northern Italy, and they have these world-renowned schools. They're primarily um, infant-toddler centers, preschools, and kindergarten programs, but they have, within the last few years, incorporated primary education and up through um, elementary education schools. But um, they have some of their preschools use an approach called the Reggio Emilia approach that is very playful (laughs) and very um, grounded in a couple of components. And I'll tell you some of the main components that incorporate the approach. And it's important to know it's not a method, it's a philosophy. So it's not a specific curriculum, specific materials, specific teacher training, like a Montessori method, for Hmm. example. It's an approach. Yeah, that's Um, a good point. So those of us who are inspired by the Reggio Emilia approach, we would never say we're a Reggio Emilia school. We Hmm. say we're Reggio Emilia inspired Okay. because it would be like saying you're a Rochester school when you're not in Rochester, if you Hmm. were to say we're a Reggio Emilia school. So um, some of the big ideas are this idea that having an image of children, that they're capable and able to help shape their own learning. Um, They're innately curious, um, valuing the intelligence of children, and really trusting that Hmm. they can, um, through their curiosity, um, can lead to deep learning. There's an idea of teachers as facilitators of that learning, and they're kind of um, co-learners shaping the learning environment. And kind of provoking, taking children's interests and trying to move it a step further and sometimes referred to as a negotiated curriculum, the Reggio okay. Emilia approach, because it's not child-led, it's not teacher-directed, it's this dance. Hmm. And the idea of environment as teacher, sometimes it's said that the environment is the third teacher because there okay. are usually co-teachers in a classroom. 
So this idea that if you make, um, you provide a variety of ways in the environment for children to express their thinking, um, which is also sometimes called the hundred languages of children. That's mm -hmm. one of the more famous books about the approach that refers to providing multiple ways, blocks, dramatic play, paint, hmm. visual arts materials um, for children to express their thinking. There's an emphasis on documenting. So really assessing um, learning and knowing what children are interested in and what they're thinking and what their theories are by taking photos and jotting down what children are saying and then sharing that, using that documentation um, with parents, with children, with your co-teachers, and that really helps drive the planning as well. Hmm. So it's this um, planning process where you're maybe launching an idea, looking at the documentation, reflecting on how it went, and then trying that again or trying something new. Yeah. Um, and the role of parents is the last one that comes to mind where parents are really considered partners in their children's education hmm. in really meaningful ways where there's ongoing communication with the documentation and parents might have ideas of something their child said at home or something they're interested in that they'd like to share with the class. So while we're not a cooperative school in the sense that parents are not in the classroom all the time, we really have a lot of ongoing communication with parents and value their thoughts as well. Hmm. I love that because that's huge. And that's a, that's a part that's missing in a lot of schools around the country and around the world too, is just that constant communication with the parents because the kids need it, the teachers need it, and the parents need it. it helps yeah, everyone. Everyone benefits. That's right. Yep. Yeah, and I, I really liked what you said when you kind of referred to it as a dance between the teacher and the student, because like you said, it's not teacher led. It's they're more of a facilitator, but then it's also not purely student directed either. Because what I think is cool is I, I would imagine there are times when the teacher might have an idea or set up an environment and and expect something to happen, but the kids take it in a totally different direction. Does that type of thing happen a lot? That happens a lot. And when you think about the beginning of the year, we as early childhood professionals are making our best guesses about, <laughs> you know, providing experiences based on our experience of what children might want to pursue. But then yeah. we're standing back and seeing how that goes, not knowing our group very well yet, usually. Mm -hmm. Um, at the Strong, we've had an opportunity to, to get the writings and works of Leila Gandini, the leading educator and author about the Reggio Emilia approach, and she's visited twice. Oh, and wow. I ha had the opportunity to talk with her about the term emergent curriculum, which hmm. some people use when it comes to the Reggio Emilia approach. And she's the one who taught me to say, no, it's really not emergent. That doesn't really express the amount of input the teachers have and hmm. the parents have yeah. in how the in part of that group that helps shape the curriculum. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's such a cool approach. I mean, I think it's so great for kids to start off their schooling in an environment like that. It just seems very free for them, I guess. It it makes it it makes them feel okay to make mistakes and okay to explore and be curious because 
there isn't some super specific thing that they have to stay dialed into the whole day when they're at school. Mm-hmm. It also assumes that, um, like the big project threads might end up being something we phrase our projects in terms of a big question. So let's say the project thread ends up being how do things live underwater? It's not Hmm. like uh, we're not terribly interested in little slices of content, like the fact that fish have fins or, or gills, you know, we Mm -hmm. really, it's inquiry in the sense we're learning how to learn. So we're pursuing this together. We're, and it's very playful and very individualized because we can support the skill development really nicely in small groups and in mm-hmm. individual groups and that we can shape, you know, writing experiences and reading experiences around that and ways to represent our thinking about that. And mm-hmm. while that would be kind of a science content um in general there's a lot of skill development in other domains that we are able to weave in yeah i'm sure when i say this i'm sure there's going to be a lot of classroom teachers out there that are very jealous of this but (laughs) when i went and observed um classes there one day i noticed that there was a teacher leading the instruction or kind of leading the large group then there was an additional teacher working with kids on an individual basis, sometimes going over and helping them or um, refining a task or things like that. And then there was also a teaching assistant in the class and the class size was only around 15, right? That's true. That's true. And, and that is (laughs) a source of envy sometimes with teachers who have large class sizes. We also, it's kind of rare to see times of the day that we're in a whole group, although we start with a meeting and a read aloud and we have sometimes we all come together. A lot mm-hmm. is done in small groups as well, which like, there might be a small group that's going to visit the butterfly garden because we use the whole museum as our classroom. Mm-hmm. And there might be a small group that's staying in the classroom to do something else or doing story workshop in one of the other smaller spaces. So, um, what you saw was a little unusual in that we were all together at that Hmm. particular time. Okay. So kind of going off that, then you talked a little bit about utilizing the museum, but how does that, what role does that play in the kids daily schooling that they get there? Well, it's an integral part of what we do. And because the exhibits are designed to have the education built right in and they're very hands-on, um, it's really important that children go out, have experiences in the museum, um, and have experiences in the outdoor space and in the classroom. Mm-hmm. It's it's really a pretty artificial learning environment to be sitting in in a little in a box all day yeah. long with I agree. children all your same age. So yeah. whenever possible, um, we use the wonderful resources that we have out in the exhibits and outdoors, as well as the things that we have in the classroom space. Yeah. I like that a lot. Cause your classroom space is just kind of like a home base that you check in at and are there for a smaller amount of time than you're actually out of the classroom and doing other stuff. That's how, right. how often do you guys try to go outside, take the kids outside each time they're there? We do. We have an outdoor space called the backyard and it has a sand pit and a playhouse and lots of balls and hula hoops and things and some ride-ons and a little hill with a slide built in. And that's really important to us as well. Um, Mm -hmm. I think 
that's something now that when I work with teachers in a more traditional setting, we talk a lot about because almost every school has some kind of outdoor environment that you could really blur those lines, you know, between is it outdoor time or is it indoor time and not fall into that trap of thinking the learning stops when you head outdoors. Yeah, very true. Yeah. And uh, again, I see that along with play and recess, kids being outside, even outside of school, just kids going outside and playing Uh has decreased dramatically over the past 10 to 15 years. I'm seeing a lot less kids outside, especially in school, but even when they get home from school, a lot of them are staying inside or if they are outside, they're in some kind of organized sports league, not just having free unstructured play. It's true. I think there's, um, these are times where there are a lot of pressures on parents to schedule their children up or thinking mm-hmm. that they're doing their children a disservice if they're not driving them from tennis lessons to violin lessons to soccer camp to, you know, yep. and I think it, it'd be great if parents gave themselves some permission uh, to, to relax about that a little bit and give their, and see the value in giving their children some downtime and even working through a little bit of boredom, (laughs) you know, and figuring out what to do with that Mm -hmm. situation. Um, and that's okay. Yeah. It's going to be interesting this fall with all the new COVID guidelines, because I think it's a really good opportunity for all of us teachers to utilize outdoor space more than we ever have. And, and like you said, remind ourselves that the learning doesn't have to stop when they go outside. It doesn't have to just be thought of as recess where the kids are only playing. There's a lot of things that we can still do outside that can create a great learning environment. I agree. And I think that some of the European countries that did go back to school um, in the spring did use the outdoor spaces a lot. I've read a lot yeah. about forest schools having a lot of demand at the times like these because they're all set up to do that Mm -hmm. yeah it makes sense um so obviously you're you're an expert in play-based learning um so what is it that attracts you to that type of learning so much what what is so special about play-based learning well i think it started with uh my work with children and I worked at a childcare center right out of college for about 11 years. And I don't think that I could have articulated that it was play that I felt passionately about. But mm. when spending a lot of time with children and teaching children and seeing that the importance of that and how organic it is that children and how natural it is that children play and want to connect and build relationships and explore materials and that that really literally is how they learn and develop. Mm -hmm. Um, That's how I became convinced that that was really at the heart of powerful learning. And then when I worked with slightly older children in kindergarten and first grade, I looped for several years, um, in an elementary school setting, I, I, I was able to bring a lot of those things that I had learned working with younger children and think like, what is the first grade version of this? How could I make the curriculum more playful with primary age children? Mm-hmm. And saw that um, that mindset, that play was really a powerful strategy with those children as well. 
Yeah. So I think I came at it with, you know, the children taught me that. <laughs> and mm. observing being someone who's fascinated with how children learn and develop um, was important and probably is my strength because that that way I'm open to learning from the children. That's amazing because I wish there were more people out there that appreciated play and play-based learning as much as you and I do because it's so good for kids of any age and adults too, honestly. The more we can incorporate that into the way that we learn new things, the better our retention is going to be, the more we're going to enjoy it. Um, but you guys also offer you offer trainings to local schools, right? Is it in the Reggio Emilia approach, or is it just your approach as a Woodbury school in general, or what what types of training do you offer to local schools? We've offered um, a wide variety, but I'll tell you some examples that we've done. So almost all of our professional development is custom designed to what the the particular school or district is looking for and Mm -hmm. catered to what what their needs are. Although we have had some conferences and and that kind of thing, um, typically someone will contact us and ask for something custom designed. So they range from, the largest example is probably with Fairport Central Schools, we did a three-year Um, series of professional development experiences. The largest year, I think we did about 34 presentations for their teachers, uh, kindergarten, well, some UPK through second grade teachers. And they had a district-wide three-year initiative where they were exploring play. Hmm. So um, they asked us um, to design something that was custom designed for their staff, faculty, and mm-hmm. administrators. And so we would start with whole day play workshops in the summer. With We started with kindergarten and then go and do monthly um, playful learning discussions based on a specific topic and kind of... Um, study play really in depth. We've had Mm -hmm. some other local districts have us come for maybe a smaller series or one time. Um, We've had Brighton School District. We went, I went and worked with their, um, all the staff at Council Rock for a three hour professional development. And that is more generally about play and learning. Although I use documentation and examples from Woodbury School, it wasn't specifically about the Reggio Emilia approach. Okay. There have been some other schools. Elmwood Franklin School is a private school in Buffalo, and okay. they were um, they wanted to study uh, the Reggio Emilia approach because that was an approach they were going to be inspired by in their preschool program. So they came to me and I went to them for a series of experiences um, to study the Reggio Emilia approach, how it applies in Woodbury School and how they might apply it in their particular setting. Okay. Um, I've done professional developments for um, the statewide BOCES instructional specialists who were looking at the next generation early literacy standards Hmm. and how would they go and coach teachers in the districts with which they worked on the role of play 
in, we studied the early literacy standards um, in general, but we focused in on the speaking and listening standards specifically. Mm. Okay. And we did that at the museum. It was a two-day experience that I designed with their staff. And they've asked they'd like to do a part two coming up in the spring, wow. probably virtually in Good. February. So there's there's really a range. And then yeah. we've had some Woodbury School study days where we just opened up you know, people could sign up. Every year I do an early childhood residency with Empire State College, and we mm. open that up to the public as well. Um, but the registration happens through the Empire State College okay. uh, website, and we pick a specific topic. It might be superhero play or block play or rough and tumble play. Mm. <laughs> and each year it's a different um, topic. So oh, there's cool. a wide, wide range. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think there's something, I mean, I'm a PE teacher and when I went and observed, I learned a ton there. I mean, it was, I've observed classrooms in our school district and previous schools that I worked at, but it was just a totally different approach being in yours. And I remember one thing that I really liked was you talked about earlier about documentation, how you, the kids document a lot of different things. And it was cool for, um, I think it was Cheryl. She showed me a folder of one of the students documentation of all the things that they've been doing, but it was all about trying to write. I can't remember if it was one particular letter or just writing letters in general. And she was like, this is what it looked like in September. And then this is what it looked like in October and then November and this date. And then all the way up towards the end of the year, you could see like a flip book of just how dramatic the change was. And she was like, we're, we weren't putting like pressure on him, trying to force him to do it particular way he just got better and better the more he did it and it was so cool to see it because it had been documented like that the documentation really is helpful in our assessment we do mm. use an assessment approach called the work sampling system um, which is a research-based assessment that involves checklists also but it looks at development in all domains along a continuum so we're collecting student work we're conferencing with families and we're using those checklists just to track development and make sure, um, you know, that we're paying attention across domains uh, to development and learning for each child. Mm -hmm. Is there any chance you could walk us through a typical day at the, I guess, the preschool, um, Woodbury School? Doesn't have to be super in depth, but just sure. some of the basics that they do on a on a daily basis. Sure. When children arrive, we think it's very important for them to enter into free play so that they're not sitting and waiting for their friends to come. They're not yeah. starting a meeting and then it has a lot of interruptions. So they're really, and that also, especially for very young children who might be hesitant to separate from their parents at first, it's a very mm -hmm. graceful way, sort of a soft start to the day. So they enter into some free play. They might go over and put a smock on and paint at the easels and they might start getting out some Lego bricks or, um, so they enter into free play. Then there'll be, that's about half an hour when they first okay. come and then they'll have a little chime will ring. It will be a little warning that we're going to have our meeting. Um, 
in a few minutes and then we'll gather up. If children, children know that if they're in the middle of something when it's time for cleanup, they don't need to do a complete cleanup. They might opt to leave what they're doing as long as the, the rug area is clear. That's our mm -hmm. one rule because that's where we gather up for a meeting. Oh, yeah. The meeting is very quick. We, we, it's not for calendar time or instruction. It's to celebrate being together. We'll sing a little hello song. Uh, we might tell them about some of the small group choices that are available that day or let them know, you know, some of you will be going to story workshop or some mm -hmm. of you. At the beginning of the year, we try to rotate groups through common experiences. So when we say this is what you're choosing, children know what that is. <laughs> so. Mm. But it gets to be very choice-based after that, and they might we might say, you know, some one group will be taking puppets with Miss Erin into Big Bird's Nest to play about, you know, hatching and birds. Or mm. um, so that will be the meeting that should be pretty quick, you know, ten minutes probably max, and yeah. then children will divide into play choices. We call them. Okay. And of course, in the preschool, our afternoon class is called the early kindergarten, but the early kindergarten has a little more intentional grouping. The preschool morning class, it's a little more choice-based. Okay. So um, then they'll have play choices for at least an hour and come back and might gather up and do a little reflection. There might be a few in a small group that want to tell the rest of the group something that happened. Um, we'll have a read aloud and hand washing and then children bring a snack from home and okay. have that right together kind of family style. The goal of that is conversation and socializing. And then usually the last half hour of our day is spent outside in the backyard. Oh, if cool. weather just doesn't permit, or we go out in the snow, we go out if it's just raining a little, mm. but if Good. weather doesn't permit them, we'll take a whole group. Um, trip out into the museum to one of our favorite exhibits. Okay. Oh, thank you. I mean, yeah, that sounds like a great, a great day. I love it. And, and you mentioned early kindergarten. Um, is it possible for an older student to use that as their kindergarten year? And then Absolutely. Move from yes. that to first? Okay. It is. And that would be considered some students do that for a wait and see year and some students do that for strictly that's their kindergarten year. Yeah. Um, we've and it's typically people would choose the five day option if they were doing that. But we've also had we had one student who came to us for two years and then her family's plan was to homeschool her for kindergarten and she begged could I please go to Woodbury school at least <laughs> for two days. So we yeah. did kind of homeschool Woodbury school combination. Oh, that's cool. That's <laughs> nice that you guys were able to be flexible with that. Right. Cause honestly, like I, as far as kindergarten goes, most schools in the Rochester area are now full days, five days a week. And it, it would be nice to give kids to have kids have another option where they can go for shorter times, half days somewhere else, like the Woodbury, not that they shouldn't go to a public school, but it gives families another alternative if they can have their kid go for a half day. 
That's true. Or sometimes we have families who would like a wait and see year and they're not sure if their mm-hmm. child is really ready for kindergarten, although they're age eligible. And they don't want their child to have the experience of repeating kindergarten at a public school. This is very, <laughs> it's it's not evident to children that you're doing two years of kindergarten. You're just moving yeah. on from Woodbury School like all of your friends yeah. after you're finished. So it's also helpful in that respect. Yeah, that's true. All right. So I have one last question for you. It's not something you prepared for, so you don't have to answer it. But what are your thoughts on standardized testing? Oh, I'd be happy to answer that. Okay. (laughs) Um, Now, just clarify, like, which type of standardized testing? Um, I I guess like the, yeah, like the state tests that they have for ELA and math that kids usually start taking, I think in third grade, I want to say. Um, but those types of mandated tests that we have. I think that they, um, cause a lot of unnecessary pressure on teachers and on students, because I don't, I think they're a pretty flat one dimensional, um, snapshot of one way that children can express their thinking. So, I, I know that there are much more meaningful, um, you know, ways of assessing children that also build in the learning. So a lot of mm-hmm. times when teachers are spending a lot of time teaching to the test and it takes a lot of time and energy and adds a lot of stress to children and teachers, that can be an inhibitor of real learning instead of um promoting the learning. So Mm -hmm. ideally, assessment, it can be assessment for learning, (laughs) not just, you know, one little snapshot of learning. Yep. Um, And of course, the research shows that there are a lot of biases and a lot of ways. It's just not a terribly meaningful way to assess what children know. And the horrifying Mm -hmm. thing is that sometimes the results of those not so meaningful assessments are used to make really monumental decisions about teachers' careers and about children and about whole schools, (laughs) whole schools' future. (laughs) Um, So that can be very dangerous. I also think when it comes to play that a lot of that pressure that can tend to happen with standardized testing gets pushed down to the primary teachers, even though you're not giving the assessments mm-hmm. at those grades, it, it adds this hurry up, you know, this kind of, can't we get these five-year-olds stack more like seven-year-olds kind yep. of mentality. So they'll look better on the standardized tests and we'll all feel better. Yeah. And that is very counterproductive. Yeah, I agree. And it's crazy. Cause you think about some other countries, like I, I know I, I like Finland a lot. And I talk about them a lot, but their um, their kids don't even have to start school until they're six or seven years old, just because mm. they they don't feel that pressure that that push to get them in school right away and learn, learn, learn all these all these different things to prepare for an exam. I agree, and that pr- applies as well to early emphasis on decoding, particularly in kindergarten. And the research does show that thing that can be very counterproductive when done mm-hmm. with students who really developmentally are not ready for that mm-hmm. emphasis on decoding and can be learning a lot of other foundational literacy skills that will be much more meaningful in terms of their reading development long term. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's too bad because I, I agree with everything you're saying. And I, I think the vast majority of teachers agree with, with you as well. And honestly, a lot of administrators do too. But it seems like at the state level and at the federal level all around our country, we're, our hands are tied and there's not much we can do to change that. So I, I hope over the years that people start to realize, the people that are making these decisions start to realize the things that you said and that it's really not what's best for kids right now. I agree. There's a little glimmer of light at the end of the tunnel, I think, in New York State, where um, the people who wrote those new next generation standards wrote a very powerful introduction to those standards, those early literacy standards, um, language arts standards about play and how Mm. important play is as a strategy Mm -hmm. for teaching and learning. And so I thought that was really a really hopeful sign. Yeah, I agree. Our the New York State PE standards just got renewed too this year and um, changed from I th- I think it's been almost twenty years since they've revised them and done anything to wow. the PE ones. And same thing, I really like the way that those have changed and the wording there and what they're emphasizing. So yeah, so maybe hope- the pendulum is swinging a little bit. Yes, I hope so. Let's be optimistic about it and that it is. All right, so Debbie, I don't have any more questions for you. Um, Is there anything else you want to talk about as far as the Woodbury goes or um, signing up for school or anything like that? No, we do still have some openings in our afternoon program. So if anyone would like to apply, you apply right online on our website. Okay. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for taking the time out to talk to us today. I'm sure a ton of people will get a lot of good information from this. Great. It was good talking with you, Brian.